Hope you are doing wonderful this morning. I'm coming at you with a Militant Thomist morning stream. So, today is the second iteration of my series on uncertainty. So, last time, if you remember, we went over a little bit about the nature of certainty. I defined my terms like a like a good philosopher and made sure, even though I'm not a philosopher, I'm just a theologian who uses. Well, I'm not even a theologian. I, I'm just I'm just a guy on the internet. So don't trust me. Um, which which leads us to below in the um, description of this video. There are two books. One's a deeper dive by Father Rickaby. Um, that's completely uncertainty. Uh, the whole book is just uncertainty in the first principles of knowledge, proving a little bit of what we're going to be going over today in a lot more detail and answering um, very advanced objections. And then the other one is going to be Father Copen's, which is a little bit more of a surface dive, um, and that's his brief textbook on logic. But um, today we're just going to be going over um, the proof of the existence of certainty. So what we were defining and talking about last week, now that we have all those helpful categories in our head, um, I will be briefly describing um, some of those definitions that we went over last week, but it definitely would be helpful if you haven't watched that video, if you're watching in the future, to just go back and, uh, and watch video number one before you watch this video. But before we begin... Um, do not forget uh, those two links below um, to Father Copen's work and then Father Rickaby's work. And then also, um, if you want to know Greek, um, go to fluentgreeknt.com, link below, um, code militant, because um, the knowledge of the Greek language is extremely important. Now, I mean, um, fluent Greek is geared more towards um, the natural method when it comes to New Testament Greek, but... Um, if if you if you know Greek and you have read wider than just the New Testament, you'll know that uh, some of these differences are definitely overblown. So, um, New Testament Greek will help with um, philosophical Greek too. So there you go. And then also, if you want to know what music is in the intro, those links are below. Remember to subscribe, patron, um, donate if you can. Uh, follow me everywhere, subscribe, uh, bookstore, you, you know all the stuff. I don't really need to go over this um, this time. So let us begin, and I'm going to share my screen. So maybe if you guys have like specific objections or anything like that, maybe I'll take them live. Who knows? Gosh, I need to... Uh... This is being dumb right now. Just give me one second. You know, I'm I'm such a boomer when it comes to tech. I really need I really need you know how James White, um, he has there you go existence of certainty. He has uh, his his one dude that helps him out, and then Matt Fred also has his dude. I need like a militant Jamie live on stream helping me with all of these tech issues that I boomer up. I'm just going to completely take myself off because you guys don't really need to see me. That and my my light. Is, I'm an immaterial soul controlling my body like a ghost controlling a skin suit. Um, no, you're not. So the the proof. Internet is too slow to watch live right now. Ah, rip Hassan. Yeah, the proof against this that you are an immaterial soul controlling your body like a ghost controlling a skin suit is the fact that uh, the body does uh, there there's a certain certain uh, 
mutual relation between the body and the soul to where um, the body does have an effect uh, coming back to the soul. So you're not a soul. You're just a, oh, that's just what Descartes believed. Oh, yeah. He, uh, yeah, he was just he, he was he was a very interesting man. Very interesting man. But let us begin the existence of certainty. So certainty as presence. So scholastic philosophy has begun with assert, uh, asserting, assert, I promise I can speak, ascertaining and examining undeniable facts. So this differs from other unintuitive systems, which run counter to all experience and thus can truly be labeled a philosophy of common sense, as Father Lagrange famous, famously called Thomism. Now, concerning certainty, all must encounter the fact that all men, having the full use of reason, exhibit a direct and natural adhesion to many truths as objectively certain. So when it comes to the beginning of scholastic philosophy, specifically Thomism, we run a philosophy of common sense that we begin with um, with undeniable facts that are present um, to all men and agreed upon by all men. That is, that those are those first principles of our philosophy. And then one of these principles has to do with the fact that all men have a certain objective certainty when it comes to many truths. There's, for example, uh, we'll go over exactly what these are. So, for example, an example of this is that I exist. That is an undeniable fact that everybody um, has a direct and natural adhesion to, that they exist. Nobody um, is going to doubt that fact. So for our current purpose, we're not stating that they are objectively certain, but only held to be objectively certain. And this certainty is said to be direct, not reflex. So some may object, well, um, not everybody is um, certain that they are certain. Not everybody uh, examines the certainty. Well, we're not claiming that there is some sort of reflex certainty where they're reflecting on the fact that they are certain of their own existence. But this is a direct certainty. So that so all we are um, all we are asserting is that um, that this is a a uh, a certainty that they have or they hold something as. So they hold themselves as being certain of their own existence, even if they aren't um, specifically conscious of their uh, of this fact. So there's multiple examples of this. So as we used before, their own existence, they are directly they directly hold that as certain. The existence of bodies, they hold that as certain. The connection between cause and effect, the difference between right and wrong, they all hold those things as objectively certain. Now, we're not saying that they're reflecting on um, having objective certain certainty or even that they have objective certainty of that, but only that they hold these as something which is objectively certain. All men hold these truths um, to be self-evident. <laughs> so this is, um, it's said to be natural. So part of our definition is that it's natural in that it's held by all men. So from this comes thesis number two. If you remember thesis number one, um, we did last video. There's going to actually be uh, two more theses in this video. So thesis number two is that this direct and natural adhesion of all men to many truths as objectively certain is first, certainty properly so called. Second, not indeed philosophical certainty, but third, capable of becoming such. 
So when it comes to this, this first one, is this what really everybody is wondering is whether we can have certainty properly so-called. But um, it is the assertion in this thesis that this direct natural adhesion that we have to these truths, such as my own existence, um, as objectively certain is, is said to be certainty properly so-called. Okay, so first, certainty properly so-called. So uh, defining that term, proper certainty refers to the removal of all reasonable doubt. So something which we firmly adhere to, wherein all reasonable doubt is removed. So in proof of this, certainty properly so-called is a firm adhesion to a truth on account of motives which exclude all fear of doubt, and then we can, for all fear of doubt, uh, insert all reasonable fear of doubt. But the adhesion here spoken of is such that natural adhesion is a um, firm adhesion to the truth, which is which has motives which exclude all fear of error. Therefore, it is certainly certainty properly so called. So when it comes to the major, so that is that certainly properly so certainty properly so called is a firm adhesion to a truth on account of motives which exclude all fear of error. That is evident from the definition of proper certainty. So when it comes to the minor, so this is a, uh, so we have to prove that these various parts are, um, are these conditions are met when it comes to that, um, that natural and objective holding of something as objectively certain. So the fact that it is firm, um, men cannot um, rid himself of this. And even if somebody says that they rid themselves of the of holding something as objectively certain, they're they're really self deceiving, because all men are going to hold for exist for example their own existence as objectively certain. And notice it doesn't need to be it's it's proved in this thesis, um, but that that hold it doesn't um, we're not we're not assuming. Um, really assuming that it is something which they are objectively certain of, but only that they hold it as objectively certain. And we need to make sure we're very clear with that language, although I've tripped up quite a few times. So uh, a good example of this is the famous um, case of Pyro, who was an ancient Greek skeptic, and he denied that things outside of his, his mind existed. And when there was a rock which was rolling down a hill uh, towards him, he jumped out of his way and all the other Greek philosophers trolled him about it and said like, oh, you seem pretty certain of the existence of that rock earlier, didn't you, buddy? So uh, that, that, is, that is an example. So even though he is um, saying that he is not objectively certain about the existence of that rock, he cannot rid himself of that objective certainty. And then second, it excludes a reasonable fear of error. So these judgments are not to be mistrusted and are not mistrusted. So, um, and then this quote by Copens is pretty good. So if this fear of error were not excluded by the evidence of the objective truth, it would be excluded either by the free will of man or by a blind necessity compelling man to judge wrongly. But it is not excluded by our will, for we adhere to the truth even against our will. So even those people that try to exclude um, these uh, things that they hold as objectively certain, they still hold them as objectively certain, even when they try to remove that objective certainty that they have of it, as in the case of Pyro. Nor by, by a blind necessity to judge falsely, for then our intellect would be no intellect at all, since an intellect is a power to see the truth, not a power to act blindly.
So the fact that it is not indeed philosophical certainty, so definition, so a philosophical certainty is a certain reflex certainty whereby we note the motives of adhesion. So the proof of this is this certainty is antecedent to reflection. Um, therefore, the conclusion follows. And the antecedent, that is, that this certainty is antecedent to reflection, is proved by the definition of philosophical certainty, whereby is a species of reflex certainty. So the fact that we have that, um, we, may, we may call it a natural um, inclination or natural adhesion, um, that uh, two things, uh, these certain first truths as objectively certain, that is antecedent to any reflex that we have of thinking about certainty. So since um, this is antecedent to uh, the reflex of us thinking about certainty, uh, therefore it can't be philosophical certainty since philosophical certainty is a species of, um, of reflex certainty. So, and then lastly, that it is capable of becoming philosophical certainty. So although it is in philosophical certainty, we can bring it to that next level. And the proof of this is that when reflected on and analyzed, it is distinctly seen to contain motives sufficient to exclude all fear of error. And thus the element is supplied, which constitutes the accidental difference between ordinary certainty and philosophical certainty. So that is the distinct perception of the motives for adhesion to truth. So these, um, these motives, which are sufficient to exclude a reasonable fear of error, they're present, but they're not necessarily reflected on. So since they're present um, in uh, consequent to that uh, holding something as objectively true, we can reflect back on, on our own um, uh, f adhesion to these principles and then systematically work it out. And therefore, this can uh, flower into philosophical certainty, which is basically what this ser series of videos interestingly is. It's going from that natural adhesion that we all have to certain truths as objectively certain, even if we don't uh, reflexively realize that. And then we're going and uh, proving these, these first principles and um, drawing out all of the implications. So we are actually um, uh, kind of meta, we're, we're, we're reflecting on reflexive certainty right now. So now there are objections. So the first objection is that this reasoning supposes several things that have not yet been demonstrated. For example, uh, that we have understanding. And the answer to this is it does not suppose anything that needs demonstration or is capable of demonstration. Um, that is first principles. So this uh, this objection, which you'll hear you'll hear a lot, is that um, anytime you're going to try to prove um, uh, certainty, you're going you're assuming things that you haven't demonstrated yet. But this this objection is going to assume that we can even. Um, demonstrate these things. It, it's it's uh, it's like asking for a demonstration of demonstration. It's uh, it's inevitably going to have um, some suppositions and central axioms that we are need we're going to need to suppose in order to reason. And then the second um, the second objection is that sometimes all men concur in false judgments, such as that the Earth is flat. Therefore. The conclusion follows. So uh, this is based on the fact that uh, that we are going off of the the judgment of all men as holding uh, certain things as objectively certain. So uh, the answer is that all men, and then this is going to be a scholastic answer, by the way, that I wrote it. But I can I guess I can kind of explain it along the way. Uh, 
So the answer is that that all men judge that the earth is flat. I would distinguish the antecedent, the appearance of the earth. So I would concede that. But the scientific question of, so the appearance of the earth, the reason that that concession is important is because when we think about um, the judgment that the earth is flat, we're really going off of the appearance of the earth. Nobody's really back then considering uh, the scientific question except a few people. So the scientific question of the shape of the earth, I would sub-distinguish. All men considered the scientific question. I deny some men who had various judgments on the matter. I concede. So this objection loses all of its force when one recognizes that the appearance and not the reality is being judged. So we would deny the fact that all men can concur in um, certain false judgments because not all men ever treated the scientific question. And I would um, I would deny that we could even think of something wherein all men would concur in a false judgment. So now going into skepticism. So some deny the above reasoning and are called skeptics. So there are two kinds of skeptics. One, uh, universal skeptics, and second, partial skeptics. So universal skeptics are going to deny all certainty, and then partial skeptics deny all certainty except a few facts, such as uh, their own existence. So really partial skeptics, this is going to be um, something we're going to deal with in future videos. Here we're going to deal with uh, universal skeptics because that is kind of um, what most people think of when they think of skepticism. And I'm not sure whether I spelled skeptics wrong because I've seen both spelling of skeptics with a C or with a K. So I hope that doesn't annoy you guys because when I have quotations from, from Copens, he uses a C rather than a K. So the third thesis is that the theory of universal skepticism is self-contradictory. So the proof of this is that, um, that the theory is self-contradictory, which affirms and denies the same thing. So the principle of self-contradiction. So if you contradict yourself, um, that is um, affirming and denying the same thing in, in the same manner. But such is the theory of universal skepticism. Therefore, it is self-contradictory. So when it comes to the major premise, that is that the theory is self-contradictory, which affirms and denies the same thing, uh, that is something which is definitional. And the minor, which is um, that the theory of universal skepticism is self-contradictory, this is proved from the fact that the theory of universal skepticism affirms that one can have no certainty of things explicitly. So that's what it explicitly states. But the theory of universal uh, skepticism affirms implicitly that one can have certainty of many things. So that is that words have certain meanings, that a person exists, and so on and so forth. So they're going to have a contradiction between what they explicitly affirm and then the, what they implicitly affirm when it comes to what they can have certainty about. So the whole um, system of universal skepticism is something which is um, absurd to hold because of this um, contradiction. I guess one could have like some sort of complete like epistemological nihilism, like not even like universal skepticism. Like I'm not even going to affirm like that like affirm or deny that I exist. That would be a very interesting system, but uh, that's not what we're dealing with right now. So uh, now on to Descartes himself. So Descartes, while not a skeptic, so technically uh, Descartes wasn't properly speaking a, a, a skeptic of either the universal or the partial kind. He traced a theory of methodic doubt, which can be reduced to six steps. So first uh, he he states that one should begin by doubting everything. 
And then second, um, he realizes from the cogito, that is, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, that, uh, that he can be sure of his uh, own existence. And then from this, he reasons that uh, whatever is clearly perceived is true, um, such as his own existence. And then the fourth step, uh, we clearly perceive the idea of God. Um, the fifth step from this, we reason to the veracity of our faculties because um, the evil my evil demon doesn't exist because God exists. And then sixth from this, um, the certainty of his knowledge because he can um, gain knowledge from his faculties. So that's the way um, Descartes' uh, methodic doubt is going to work. But Descartes', Descartes methodic doubt is absurd. So proof. That is absurd, which affirms and denies the same thing, but the doubt in question does so. So um, Descartes' methodic doubt is going to affirm and deny the same thing in the same manner. So the major, again, is going to be definitional. So with the minor, Descartes in step one explicitly doubts everything. Now Descartes in step two assumes a certainty about the reliability of his reasoning faculties, which does not occur until step five. So in step two, uh, cogito ergo sum, he's going to assume the cogito that I think. So thinking is going to be of his intellective faculty or his reasoning faculty. Now he doesn't, until step five, prove this from the idea of God. So he doesn't, he can't prove the veracity of his own thinking until in four he has proved the idea of God. But this, he actually proves from three, which is going to assume the cogito, which he doesn't prove until, until step five. So he's going to uh, he, he's going to get into a little bit of trouble. So basically, uh, Descartes moves in a vicious circle. He proves the reliability of our faculties by the veracity of God and the veracity of God by the reliability of our faculties and the cogito and so on and so forth. So his methodic doubt, it just it just doesn't work. So the central error of the skeptics is that nothing is certain which is not demonstrated by discursive reasoning. So this is absurd for every science must begin with self-evident axioms, such as in math where we begin with the axiom that the whole is greater than the parts. So skeptics must admit without proof the reliability of the reasoning process. That is just one example. If the first premises and the reliability of reason required proof, man could never make the first start in scientific studies. In fact, he would be incapable of reasoning at all. He would not be a rational being. So now there's three, and this is the uh, last slide, which we're going to go into more um, uh, probably maybe tomorrow. Nah, I won't do a stream on, sat on Sunday because you can't do servile work on Sunday. So uh, I guess Monday I'll. I'll go into a bit more of these, but those assumptions that we were that we started out um, with those things that everybody is going to um, hold as objectively certain, even if they don't reflect on this, there are going to be three things. So there's three self-evident axioms. So first is going to be the first fact, i.e., that he exists. Second is going to be the first principle, that is the principle of non-contradiction. And third is going to be the first condition, our ability to know truth. And these three are not proved, but they can be demonstrated because the reliability of the means in question is in several cases proved while taking their reliability for granted as having no need for demonstration.
So really, these things must, must, must be assumed. You can't really demonstrate uh, without circularity uh, these three things. Um, so first, uh, you, your existence. Second, non-contradiction. Third, our ability to know truth. Okay, that's all I have for you. Uh, thank you for um, listening. So I will see you guys later. And remember, uh, today's Saturday. Go to Mass tomorrow. Um, and yeah, tomorrow is Pentecost, I believe. So the Spirit of the Lord is about to renew the whole earth. Hallelujah, hallelujah.